Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in, your, in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Today is our penultimate class in our study of the pastoral epistles, and we are going to look at fidelity in the life of disciples through St. Paul's final encouragements to Timothy. Our outline for today is God's fidelity to St. Paul uh, in 3 verses 10 through 13, God's fidelity to Timothy 3, 14 through 15, and though the temptation was very high to put God's fidelity to us, uh, the church's fidelity anchored in Scripture, 3, 15 through 17. Each one of these sections could have been their own class, and so it may seem to jump around a little bit, but we will try and tie them together. Last week, we saw that the false teachers were the epitome of the distress that Christians would face in the last days. In our passage for today, St. Paul turns his attention back to Timothy and contrasts his loyal son in the faith to those very same false teachers, as we'll see in verses 10 through 13. You, however, writes Paul, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In these three verses, which St. Paul uses as a build-up to his final charge and encouragement for Timothy that we'll see next week in chapter 4, we learn something about discipleship. Predominantly, what it means to be a follower. And we see it through St. Paul's own positive and negative examples in his life. What does it mean to follow? To be a follower in this sense is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be a follower. St. Paul has taught elsewhere for Christians to follow him as he follows Christ or imitate him as he imitates Christ. And here he reminds Timothy that in contrast to the false teachers, Timothy has followed St. Paul's life, his ministry, and his teaching. But what does it mean to follow? The word used here is actually uh, somewhat of a technical term. It's defined as conforming to someone's belief or practice by paying special attention. I think the... Um, 
the ESV may say, you have observed my life. Following gets to the action that's happening. Observed gets to the watchfulness. The, the idea is really the two terms put together. Timothy didn't merely tag along with Paul on his missionary journeys. He was informed, conformed, and transformed by joining in with him. Both in the hearing of St. Paul's proclamation and by observing the apostles' life lived. As St. Paul begins to list areas of his life that Timothy has followed, he begins with several positive examples of his teaching and conduct, writing, You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. There's nothing surprising in this list for those of us who have been trekking through the pastoral epistles. These have all been themes that we've found throughout the letters. But let's pause to consider that last item, Paul's steadfastness. Steadfastness is the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. It often gets translated as endurance, perseverance, or as here, steadfastness. We've seen this same word throughout our study of the pastorals, over and over again, actually. In 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul calls on Timothy to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Same word. In Titus 2.2, Paul tells Timothy to encourage the older men, the fathers of the congregation, to be temperate, serious, prudent, and sound in faith, love, and in endurance. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul wrote that he endures everything. using the verbal form of the word, endures everything for the sake of the elect, and just two verses later gives us the promise that if we endure, we will also reign with him. It's funny how easily missed this word was in our previous readings, but now as we contemplate the context of St. Paul's persecution and coming martyrdom in Timothy's difficult ministry in Ephesus, that the word takes on a sudden importance and leaps off the page. Indeed, even its mention here marks a sudden and stark turn in St. Paul's list of things which Timothy has experienced with Paul in his ministry. For he continues, you have followed, skipping to steadfastness, and then my persecutions and sufferings. That happened at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And so without missing a beat, we have gone from my faith, my patience, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my suffering. St. Paul mentions three locations that he visited on his first missionary journey and revisited during his second Though Timothy is not mentioned until the second missionary journey, he is mentioned in relation to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And it was here during the second uh, second missionary journey that Timothy joined St. Paul. We 
mentioned this a little bit in I think the first class so if you want a little bit more background on that you can find it in the first class but um, it is it is very likely that Timothy witnessed the very persecutions that St. Paul here brings up. In fact, it may have been somewhat formative for his coming to Christ. Timothy, all this to say, Timothy has no misgivings about the Christian life. His very relationship with Paul began by observing the persecution he faced and getting chased out of towns and attempted to be stoned. But even in mentioning these, the apostle turns once again to God's fidelity to him, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. He says, these persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. St. Paul endured all these persecutions and more, but behind it all, behind even St. Paul's endurance, was the sovereign goodness of God who rescued him. Throughout the epistle, Paul has encouraged Timothy to face suffering by relying on the power of God, Second uh, Timothy 2.8, and that even though it looks like the false teachers are winning, God is still in control, to 1, 2, 18, 3, 8 through 9. The fidelity of God in Christ to his people is always behind St. Paul's encouragement and suffering. That's been <clears throat> the focus of our studies in the last few weeks since beginning 2 Timothy. There is not a situation that goes by where God's sovereign goodness and protection and fidelity of his people does not lay behind it. And because of this, in verses 12 and 13, St. Paul draws two general principles from his own experience in ministry. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Contrast this with the modern prosperity gospel which teaches that suffering is a result of a lack of faith. That is a false gospel. St. Paul has no place for that in his theology. Scripture actually teaches that fidelity often results in suffering. An early church father, St. John Chrysostom, comments on this passage saying, Here... Here, Paul calls afflictions and sorrows persecutions, for it is not possible that a man pursuing the course of virtue should not be exposed to grief, tribulation, and temptations. For how can he escape it who is treading in the straight and narrow way? And who has heard that in the world ye should have tribulation? If Job in his time said, The life of man upon the earth is a state of trial, how much was it more was it so in Paul's days? All Christians will suffer. We all will face affliction and sorrow, grief and tribulation and temptations. 
the truth is, we are all jars of clay. And none of us have the capacity to suffer well in ourselves. It does not do either to think of your suffering and tribulations and trial as too small to bring to others' attentions for prayer and for fellowship, nor does it do to consider the sufferings of others too small, that it's not really suffering. Because as jars of clay, apart from God's grace, we all would immediately crack and fall apart under the pressure of even the tiniest grief. We all rely on God's graciousness to get us through every single day. And how easy we forget that. It's the first general principle. The second general principle is that evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, the word imposters here. Is this The word imposters here can be translated as magicians or sorcerers and in some contexts, but also swindlers in others. And and the use of this word in that dual context recalls um, the passage we looked at last week with uh, Jonathan Jambres, the magicians of Egypt. Here, he restates what he said in verse 9 that they will not make much progress. Their folly will become plain to everyone. In our passage today, here, they will progress. It's the same word, even though it's not translated the same here, from bad to worse. Now, this twin use of progress, that they will have some sense of victory while also going from bad to worse, is not a contradiction. For the false teachers, their victory is ultimately incurring a harsher judgment before God because their victory are leading people away from Christ. Their infidelity is a downward spiral which itself is deceptive. By appearing to be successful, it ultimately reveals itself as folly. And at the same time, a fidelity marked by suffering is paradoxically one which ends with a greater blessing being face-to-face with Christ Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, fully healed, whole, and engaged in life as God has always meant it to be. Paul does not stop drawing the contrast between Timothy and the false teachers there. It continues through verses 14 and 15. So the false teachers are imposters who will eventually disintegrate under the judgment of their own sin. They will fall apart. Their earthen vessels will be shown for what they are. Timothy, however, is encouraged into further and further fidelity. The comparison, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and from how and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And in calling 
Timothy towards continued fidelity, St. Paul reveals that God's fidelity reveals God's fidelity to Timothy in placing him within spheres of faithful Christians who have discipled him in the faith. St. Paul begins this section by encouraging Timothy to continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. The word continue translates a word which also means remain or abide. In paradox, to continue, to progress, in fidelity, we must remain and abide. The false teachers were always searching out new knowledge, and so because of that, because they had no foundation of truth, they went from bad to worse, because they're not anchored in truth. Timothy, by contrast, is to abide in the knowledge that he has already received, and increasing in that knowledge, the gospel and sound doctrine. Truth, particularly truth about God, has a bounded width, but an infinite depth. The false teachers continue to spiral further out. Timothy is to go further up and further in, to borrow from the last Narnian book. And this comparison of Timothy to the false teachers uh, reminds me of a contrast that the novelist Wallace Stegner makes between two types of people. Boomers, not the generational label, this is his own term, and stickers. The essayist, novelist, and poet Wendell Berry mentioned Stegner's categories in his 2012 lecture, It All Turns on Affection. <coughs> if you have not read or listened to, I highly recommend. And in the context of the lecture, Wendell spoke about the economy, comparing globalization and localism and, and, and uh, the problems therein, and adopting Stegner's categories. Stegner says, through Berry's recollection, who had him as a professor, that boomers are those who pillage and run, who want to make a killing and end up on easy street. Uh, Barry, with vocabulary stuck in the 50s and 60s, uh, just as he would like it. Stickers are those who settle and love the life that they have made and the place that they have made it in. Barry then contextualizes the categories to his his own lecture, writing, The boomer is motivated by greed, the desire for money, property, and therefore power. Stickers, on the contrary, are motivated by affection, by such love for a place and its life that they want to preserve it and live in it. Do you see the familiarity between these categories and what was happening at the Ephesian church? The false teachers, motivated by greed and power, as we saw in 1 Timothy, have pillaged Ephesian Christians. Timothy, rather, is to be motivated by love of God and neighbor, to abide, to remain, and to stay in his difficult ministry, in a difficult church, and in the difficult life brought about by persecution. Timothy has been called to respond to his opponents with love, kindness, patience, and gentleness, the marks of a sticker whose fidelity is motivated by affection. 
And therefore, St. Paul's charge to Timothy is to be a sticker, to pursue fidelity to sound doctrine, to the gospel, and to parish ministry. Ministry to a particular people in a particular place. And in this encouragement, St. Paul gives two arguments for why Timothy should root himself in fidelity to what he has come to believe through apostolic teaching. First, St. Paul says that Timothy should remain rooted to sound doctrine because he knows from whom he has learned it. This raises an obvious question. From whom has Timothy learned the gospel and sound doctrine? The answer to this question involves two families. First, Timothy's own earthly family. And as we read in 2 Timothy 1, 4 through 5, Paul referenced Timothy's spiritual heritage as it was passed down to him from his grandmother and his mother. I long to see you, Paul wrote, so that my joy may be made full as I recall your tears and am reminded of your sincere faith. This faith dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, and now I am convinced lives in you also. This is confirmed in verse 14 of our passage today when Paul says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings. You see, out of their own fidelity to God, Timothy's grandmother and mother raised and catechized him in the faith. When St. Paul says that Timothy knows from whom he learned the faith, he doesn't mean that Timothy is simply aware of his grandmother and his mother. He means that Timothy knows them. Not just who they are, but the depths of what they believe and the character and conduct that their faith has produced in them. He's seen them at their best, but he has also seen them at their worst. And their character, nonetheless, is an apologetic for the truthfulness of what they teach in Scripture. Now, I've said there were two faithful families. For indeed, the first family is a good place to start, but it is not the only sphere in which God calls us to be family. The second family is God's family, the church. Just as Timothy learned the faith from his earthly family, he also learned from St. Paul. Consider, just from 2 Timothy alone, these verses. Hold to the standard of sound, doctor, of sound teaching that you have heard from me. A lot less typos in the version that you're seeing, which is good. <laughs> Let me start that again. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me. Second uh, Timothy 1.13 what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Second Timothy 2.2. And from today's passage, you have followed my teaching and my conduct. 3.10. This last reference is St. Paul's assertion that Timothy knows the apostle's own character. And just as Lois and Eunice raised Timothy from infancy to maturity, St. Paul discipled Timothy from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. 
So here, then, are the two familial contexts that God has designed for our spiritual formation in our homes and in our church. The second reason that St. Paul gives for rootedness and sound doctrine in that <clears throat> is that Scripture alone contains the truth of how we can be saved. Verse 15. From childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And instead of spending a lot of time on that verse here, that actually brings us to the last section of the class today. The fidelity of the church is anchored in Holy Scripture. Verses 15 again, uh, and added to that 16 and 17. From childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Now, given the importance that has been attached to these verses in a lot of debates and and talks about scripture, it may surprise you to hear that they are functionally just transitional sentences. They're not even the main point of Paul's argument. They serve to bridge the gap between St. Paul's encouragements in verses 10 through 14 with St. Paul's final charge that we will see next week in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Though they are transitional, they do teach us a fundamental and foundational truth about the origin and the authority of Scripture, and therefore Scripture's necessity in the ministry of the church. Regarding Holy Scripture's origin, Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And the key phrase here, inspired by God, is a single Greek word, theopneustros. It's likely that Paul invented the word himself, joining the word theos, God, to neustos, breathe out. Peace silent when you say it by itself, when you smash it together, there's a big old plosive, theopneustos. Neustos. Anyways, St. Paul here teaches that scripture itself is breathed out by God. Holy Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, such that Scripture's origin is God himself. And when we read Holy Scripture, we can be sure that we are reading God's very words to us. Paraphrasing my friend Rob Plummer, in whatever Scripture affirms or denies, it is completely truthful, because Scripture is God's own words. And therefore, this is me now, Oh, Rob might have said this too. I don't, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I looked it up. Therefore, because Holy Scripture is God's very own words, they carry with them ultimate authority. Just as Article 6 of the 39 article teaches, in the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. Scripture carries its authority by being God's very words to us. 
A few weeks ago, we talked about authority and the church and how all authority is derived authority because God is our only true sovereign. If that is true, then his own and very words to us carry the same weight and authority as if God was speaking them to us right here and right now. So that's a lot of depth in what essentially amounts to a transitional sentence. It's almost as if uh, Paul expects Timothy to have already known and understood that. Well, yeah, all scripture is inspired by God. You know this, Timothy. So why does he bring it up here? The divine origin of scripture is important to Paul's encouragement to Timothy because of the assurance that it brings to Timothy's continuing fidelity in ministry even after the apostle's death. Maybe particularly in light of the apostle's death. And so, continuing the argument from the origin and the authority of Scripture, Paul writes, you can insert a therefore, is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Now, the ultimate purpose of Scripture is, of course, God's self-revelation to sinners who otherwise could not and would not seek out God. We wouldn't be able to find him if we tried, and therefore he has sought us out. And as part of this self-revelation, God reveals his intentions and designs for the flourishing human life, both before and after Genesis 3. But, seeing as how this passage is transitional, and therefore Paul is not saying everything that there is to say about the purpose of Scripture, he is instead contextualizing that purpose of Scripture particularly to Timothy's ministry situation. And in doing so, St. Paul gives us two couplets of positive and negative uses for Scripture which are pertinent to the fidelity of the church. The first deals with proclamation and sound doctrine. Scripture is useful for teaching and reproof. Positively, Scripture is our ultimate authority in teaching and proclaiming sound doctrine. Negatively, it is our foundation by which we are able to rebuke false teachers. The second couplet deals with the fruit of sound doctrine, behavior and conduct, this time, the negative is listed first. Correction, which is the goal of rebuke. The negative uh, example given above. And training in righteousness, which is the goal of sound teaching. Mentioned first. Now, training in righteousness has a parallel that we've talked about already. And that comes in Titus 2, 11 through 14, where St. Paul presents the grace of God as our catechist in righteousness. And this parallel is important because here we see the culmination of the theme of sound doctrine and the fruit it bears in our lives, salvation, and lives marked by gospel conformity, and how in its culmination it is brought about 
those things are only brought about by the grace of God who saves us and conforms us into the image of Christ. If Timothy's ministry is not anchored in the apostolic teaching and the scripture that they had at the time, then it will fall apart. But, if he stands on the authority of God's word, what is the result that we pray for? When God's grace is at work through the reading and hearing of scripture, the results are what we find in verse 17. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Now, the NRSV and many other tra- translations render this verse as if it's generic, saying, so that everyone who belongs to God. The ESV and some others render it as specific, saying, so that the man of God. Which is it? Everyone or a particular person? I think it's both. Paul leans into the ambiguity of the phrase man of God, which can be both generic and specific. It's a grammatical play on words called plurisignation. The New Testament authors use this all the time, especially St. John. And what it is is when you you have some wordplay that brings with it a native ambiguity to the terms. It doesn't mean this, doesn't mean that. There's two ways that this can go. And when they use it, they often mean both. Especially St. John. Is it everyone? Is it a particular person? Paul's answer would be yes. See, contextually, it makes sense that St. Paul is referring specifically to Timothy. He's already called Timothy the man of God in 1 Timothy 6.11. Second, these verses are the foundation, as I said, of the charge that he's giving to who? Timothy. In 4.1, that charge is to preach the word of God. On what assurance? That the word of God will make Timothy proficient for the ministry to which he has been called. Okay, so why do so many translations take it in a general sense? Because the ministry of teaching and proclamation, the ministry of the church has as its aim, according to Ephesians 4.11, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ordained clergy aren't the ministers of the church. The church is the ministers, are the ministers to the world. And as the Holy Spirit works through Scripture to make Timothy proficient and equipped for his ministry, so too does the Holy Spirit work through Scripture and Timothy's teaching and proclamation to make God's family proficient and equipped for every good work. We could paraphrase verses 16 and 17 like this. All Scripture is inspired by God, and because it is inspired by God, it is profitable for your ministry, Timothy, as you use it to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness— so that the family of God, including yourself, may be capable and fully equipped to be God's ministers to an unbelieving world. And it is in light of this that this has been my goal in framing this study as I have. 
God's vision for the church as his faithful family. Exercising fidelity to God, to sound doctrine, to each other, and to God's mission to the world. In the language of Wallace Stegner, the church rejecting boomerism and embracing the fidelity of being a sticker. Because after all, Wendell Berry is right. It all turns on affection. Beginning with God's affection for his people, whose love is salvific and transformative, rooting and sustaining us all in all of life's sufferings and difficulties, compelling us to be people of affection towards others because of the affection that God has poured out lavishly upon us. And the only foundation we have for such a sticker fidelity is God's Holy Spirit, working through God's Holy Scriptures. But that foundation is utterly sufficient in accomplishing the purpose for which God has revealed through his word. To reveal that purpose being to reveal a beauty so compelling that it draws rebellious sons and daughters back into the family of God. Amen.